0: Oh, Captain, my Captain. Oh, Captain, my Captain.
1: Oh, Captain, my Captain. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Uh, Welcome to Captain, my Captain. My name is Mark Culver. That was a strong W I started with today, wasn't it? Uh, Ricky Musindo
0: yeah it was a strong welcome to oh captain my captain it was a very strong one how's my favorite seedy looking guy mark
1: (laughs) can you um can you please place that into context for the people who maybe don't know me in real life and don't (laughs) follow me on
0: social media please well, Mark is just a seedy-looking bloke. No, put it in actual. Context, <laughs> well, Okay, fine. Him, him looking like a seedy-looking bloke got him a part in a little show where he had how many lines? Um, I think I had about three lines. Uh, three, three lines. I mean, it's more more than I've ever had. Yeah. And and um, his the name of his character was seedy-looking guy. Thank anyway.
1: you very much. As Stephen Merchant's new show. Outlaws on uh, BBC One, which I'm really enjoying, filmed in Bristol. Uh, They... Can I ever tell you the story of how I got the role? No, you didn't, no. Um, I basically... uh, Because I think we might have talked about it ages ago, but I wasn't able to say more because it wasn't on the telly, and it's now on the telly. Um, I... uh, They asked me for... The production company asked me for the names and contacts of loads of Bristol-based comedians just before the pandemic, actually, this was. Nah. Um, this was how far ago it was. I've known Stephen Merchant since I was about 14. We were uh, um, in a radio writing group together at the BBC on the White uh, Road. Road. Um, he actually asked me to write sitcoms with him, and I said no. <laughs> uh, <at the> <laughs> Oh, it gets worse than that. Wow, that's hilarious. Coco, it gets worse than that. Uh, Because um, when he started doing stand-up, and he was kicking for about a year before me, and he was sort of my inspiration. I was like, "Oh, if he can do it, I can do it. And then I saw him at a gig, and I asked him what he was up to. And he was like, oh, you know, just working on a pilot for a, a TV show. Uh, and I went, oh, that's exciting What's it about? And he went, oh, it's set in an office And I went, oh, that's interesting He went, yeah, we've not cast all the people yet Do you want to come in for a screen test? And I was like, nah, you're alright okay. uh, Wow, wow Yes The story. So, um, <laughs> so they asked me To do an, uh, And I gave them this list And then I wasn't on it I didn't put myself on on my own list for Bristol comedians, and they're like, "Why aren't you on it?" And I was like, "Oh, honestly, I'm I'm the worst actor in the world. I genuinely am the worst actor in the world." Yeah. Um, and they were like, "Oh, come on, come on, uh, come and do it." And I was like, "No, t- trust me, it's there's just a waste of time." And they went, "Well, come to the read-through where they read through the scripts." So I went, "All right," so I went through the read-through, read through the scripts. Next day, they phoned me up and they went, so we've got uh, a part we want to give you. I know you don't want to audition. Um, seedy looking guy. So, uh, <laughs> so, that's, <laughs> so that's what happened. Wow, I, um, a seedy looking guy. I love it. Yeah, I own a sex shop in St. Paul's. Um, it
0: was, do you know what? It was an amazing day. Have you done any acting? No, no, not any TV or anything. Just like plays at school back in the day. Uh, what was your uh, what was your character in your play at school? I Have you ever heard of Inherit the Wind? Uh, yes, I think I have. Yeah, I was the like sweet-talking lawyer, well, the sweet-talking reporter who came in to write about all the Southern Hicks hating evolution, because apparently nice. I have a condescending tone to the way that I speak.
1: Well, there you go. That feels like a spin-off for the two of us seedy-looking guy and condescending guys.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right, the pilot.
1: I um, I was amazed because I do... I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I do a bit of TV warm-up. I don't Just know if that's bit. ever come up in Just this conversation. Just Just a bit. Um, We're feisty today. I like this. (laughs) We've never recorded. Full disclosure, we're doing this on a Friday. We're doing this the day before this one goes out. So I imagine subconsciously uh, we're trying to bring our A game of punts so there is as little
0: edits needed for tomorrow (laughs) as possible. Exactly. You know exactly what I'm thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So
1: I do, doing the warm-up I do, like these shows, like even the longest show in the world will take five hours which is a ridiculous amount of time for a studio recording but this one scene I was in that was 90 seconds long all in all took about four and a half hours to film. What the fuck? It's amazing the, the, sort of the, the speed that, that that sort of location show uh, goes at is so slow and talking to lots of friends who do that sort of stuff and are in sitcoms and acting and stuff, they, their cars, like they, they get picked up from their house at like seven, like 5 a.m. to Jeez. be in makeup by six, to be filming by seven. Like it sounds like Jeez. the craziest world in the and And it is. And so I am a rubbish actor, but I thought to myself, do you know what? If, we're here for four hours and to get different shots of me, they they <laughs> take ages and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. At some point, someone's going to tell me if it's dreadful. At some point, yeah, you'd hope so. <laughs> They'd be in like, four, oh, mate, this is shit. Yeah, exactly. Like, in four hours, there's time to go, like, sometime in the first hour, they're going to go, yeah, Oliver, could you do us a favour and, you know, not be rubbish? <laughs> um... <laughs> So, uh, so, yeah, so that was my, uh, that was my, uh, and that was on, that was on telly this week, which is quite exciting. And I think, while we're talking about this, I think our magnificent guest has rocked up. I think yeah. Mr. Dean Burnett is here. Are you here, Dean? I'm here, yes. I'm here indeed.
2: I can see your How space. are
1: you?
2: I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm uh, slightly chilly. I'm in my outdoor office, so you know, the, the background temperature of Wales doesn't climb very high, and it tends to um,
1: stay like When that. you say out. Outdoor office, uh, I'm going to say right now, that's a shed, isn't it, mate?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, all the packaging it said cabin, but I mean, everyone calls it a shed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I put my computer in it, so that makes it an office, right?
1: That's how offices work? That's, that's absolutely how offices work. Um, Dean Monnet, it's great to see you. I've not seen you for such a long time. Yeah, and I think we we tend to... This is the world's most informal podcast, so I think we've already started. So (laughs) Dean Burnett, Ricky (laughs) Macindo, Ricky Macindo, Dean Burnett. Hello,
0: nice (laughs) to meet you.
1: (laughs) Um, Ricky uh, has on his Zoom Jasper Williamson. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's because Ricky is a student and has stolen uh, (laughs) one of his friends' uh, Zoom logins. And (laughs) Dean, just a little quiz for you before we start. Okay. Um, Ricky's uh, friend is called Jasper Williamson. Ricky is doing medicine. Do you want to have a guess which university Ricky is at?
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> Bristol?
1: <laughs> yeah! Ooh, ooh. Rah, rah. Um, Dean, like what, what is your... What's your job title at the moment? I was thinking about this when we were getting you on. I was thinking, how do we describe Dean Burnett?
2: Uh, at the moment, I mean, if you ask me like, how I pay the bills, it's um, I'm an author at the moment. I'm a writer-author for for books and anyone who wants me to write something for them. Um, but uh, I don't know, for the academic stuff, I'm an honorary research associate at Cardiff uh, U- University Psychology School and a an I- visiting industry fellow at Durham City University, uh, both of which are impressive sounding titles, which involve me doing absolutely nothing. So um, it's really quite good. But they don't pay me either, so... You know, <laughs> 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 it's, uh, it's, it's going to be a mutual thing. Like, we won't ask you to do anything, but we won't give you anything either. All right, cool, cool. I like this arrangement. It's nice.
1: <laughs> um, Ricky has just done. Didn't you do neuroscience last year, Ricky? Is
0: that right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, in season one and two, I was doing oh, cool. neuroscience degree.
2: So I nice
0: degrees. Excellent. Yes,
2: I'm, obviously, I'm going to approve of that because yes, uh, that's, that's what I do. So I hope so. Yes. <laughs> I I'm I'm in favour of this approach. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: Dean, I met Dean when uh, he did stand up. So I, I'm not going to say used to do stand up because I always have the dream that everyone will eventually come back to stand up.
2: <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, I I, 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 I I've never I've never officially stopped doing stand up. Um, I mean. The, the invitations had dried up <laughs> eventually, but uh, that's, a <laughs> that's a whole different thing. But no, I, I still sort of say I, I do it, but I, I would never... Um, you no, know, it started maybe 2004, and I did, did quite a lot, really. I really quite enjoyed it. But uh, eventually realised that I actually preferred writing sets to performing them. And so, like, oh, yeah, I've written a good set oh, I suppose I've got to tell someone now. And that seemed like a sort of uh, a more annoying part of it. And, um, yeah, so I... I <laughs> Because now I do book talks, I do literary events and book talks and sort of uh, literary festivals and stuff. And that's me an hour on stage by myself, so I can just throw jokes in there if I want to. And that sort of scratches that itch, which is nice to you do. Know, but also, there's no expectations because I've I got two two outs. So if I'm telling jokes and people laugh, I say, "Yeah, see, I'm good at this." But you know, it's, it's okay because people don't expect it to be funny because it's a book talk. If I tell jokes and no one does laugh, they're like well, it's okay. It's a book talk. it's I'm meant to be funny, so uh, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, got, I've got myself covered both ways. Just like. Nice.
1: I'm gonna go uh, straight into the topic that I want to talk about today. Um, Ricky, you can uh, you can get involved as well. All right, we are (laughs) going. Thank you, kind of you. Thank (laughs) you (laughs) because we've done so. We've done so much on this podcast about writing, about finding your voice, about gigging, all that sort of stuff. And um, I thought to myself, do you know what? Let's have a conversation. Okay, it's 2021. Technology is really impressive. Surely we can cut past all the work that we do, creating a persona, creating jokes, all that sort of stuff, and find a way to just get an audience and shine a laser at their brain and (laughs) make them laugh. Like, (laughs) sure, like, surely there is a shortcut. That we've all been missing with the brain. Dean, <laughs> Dean, come on, we can do this in the next 45 minutes. Okay. I reckon we, first of all, is that, that's obviously not scientifically possible now, but theoretically, is it possible to make someone laugh just by pressing a bit of their brain?
2: Well, technically, in that there's like uh, the laugh reflex is quite a, fun, a fundamental primitive one. So it's, Handled by parts of the brainstem, like there's a few sort of a network which is triggered and then causes this laughter noise. So you could feasibly stimulate that, but you get someone who's laughing and they don't know why they're laughing. They don't find anything funny, and they probably be quite distressed by that. And that's, I mean, that's probably I, I've had some bad gigs, but I haven't actually tried to do that. You know, <laughs> I'm laughing, but I hate it, and that's <laughs> that's, a, that's a strange uh, reaction to cause. So you can trigger the laugh reflex, but it's the whole. Um, the pleasure aspect, like this, you find something funny, and that's really, really complex thing. It's something humans like the human brain, is particularly good at, but it's it's, it's really complex. And it's because we got such powerful brains, we can do that. Like um, at the most fundamental level, uh, a lot of recent data says it's to do with incongruity. So we have this understanding of how the world works. You know, we expect things to go this way, that way, this way. This is how things work when we're in any situation, and then something challenges that. Something like something incongruous happens. That's not supposed to happen. It's quickly resolved, and like, oh, that's a new thing, and I, uh, that a different thing happened, but it was proved to be safe. And therefore, your brains learned something and it was added to its uh, area of experience and stuff. And that's uh, sort of what makes us laugh because, oh, yeah, the, the, the some I think Freud called it like the the, the psychic tension has been resolved of laughter, but um. Yeah, but it, what leads to it is so complex and so variable from person to person. You know, you've obviously met loads of people who have a different sense of humor, Like, I don't find that funny. That's not funny. I don't I do find this funny and stuff. And so it's it's sort of shaped by our lives and experiences and ability to solve the incongruity. Like a pun is like incongruous, like it's a word, but it's got two different meanings. That's not how words work, but it's fine, it's safe. So you could necessarily laugh, but you, you acknowledge it as a thing, you know. Like, so, oh yeah, it's good wordplay there. So um I think like a slapstick. People aren't meant to fall over and sort of slam their face into walls and stuff. But when it happens and they're fine, they're like, oh, that's actually quite funny because the change has occurred, like the unexpected thing has happened, but it hasn't been harmful, at least not to me. You know, kind of. I, can, I can find it funny. Uh, so, yeah, there's lots of different things at work when we laugh at things in terms of uh, the actual humour. Side of it, so you can make people laugh, but you can't necessarily trigger a humour response. uh, I once
1: um, was standing at the top of Park Street in Bristol in winter, unwrapping a Cadbury's cream egg uh, while wearing mittens, and the Cadbury's (laughs) cream egg slipped out of my hand and rolled down Park Street. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That is a lovely image. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It feels like I'm. so many different levels. There's an incongruity there. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful visual image. Like there's the mittens. My first thought was, when do you get a cream egg in winter? <laughs> I
1: well, know, it was a of it's years... No, it's a couple of years ago because they tend to bring out uh, cream eggs. If you've got an early Easter, your cream egg is coming yeah, out in February. True, true. True, yeah. I mean oh, I've seen
2: I've seen some shops throw on like they're on the shelves on boxing days sometimes, so I can't really argue. Yeah, that, so,
1: yeah. Absolutely, thank you very much. <laughs> I, I wish. Um, Ricky, when, <laughs> when you uh when you hear Dean talking about that, does it kind of is this basically your two of your worlds coming together? And how <laughs> does that and how does that make you feel like when you do when you did your A-levels and when you did your first couple of years of medicine before becoming a comedian, do you, I don't know, do, does it feel weird that this this juxtaposition is happening now?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's weird that the two worlds kind of come together because I just have <laughs> like two different sides of my mind that deal with either part. But like, you know, it's, it, it is interesting because I've seen people like uh, patients who have something called like pseudo bulba effect where it says they've had like a stroke in their, in their brain, in their brain, like in their brainstem. And it means that they're constantly like inappropriately laughing at stuff. So it's like, you can Mm -hmm. actually materialize that reaction in people, like kind of physically, like they'll literally just be sitting there and they'll just start laughing at things and they can't control themselves. And it also happens in people who injure, who get in head injuries. Like, Mm -hmm. have you seen the Joker? Have you seen the Joker? the film oh yeah I, I know, yes no sorry I haven't seen that yet oh, so incredible My list. but in that in that film he like he laughs inappropriately at loads of stuff because he had a head trauma and it's like yeah it's not something that's impossible to <clears> elicit <throat> without telling a joke but yeah no it's very strange I never thought I'd have a conversation about the neuroscience of <laughs> laughter
2: Yes, yeah, you get used to it because obviously that's, uh, when when people found out I was a neuroscientist, I was doing comedy. Like, also oh, tell us about this. Is no, God, leave me alone. This is <laughs> I was, like, was like I, I used to come compartmentalizing. No, that's that's my day job. This is not my day job. No, one, no one's paying me for this, which is uh, <laughs> just a constant problem. But um
1: yeah, but just so, to let you know, uh, Dean, we're not paying you for this either. So. Yeah, no, that's, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> 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 I get connected. <guess, laughs> I tell you why I find the whole thing quite fascinating because I think there are two different types of comedians well there are lots of different types of comedians uh, but in this regard, I think there are people who love to analyze, love to uh Gary Delaney is very big on taking his jokes apart and looking at the specifics mm. and blah 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 and lots and I know John Richardson was very analytical about that. And some of us, and those people tend to work quite hard <laughs> and start <laughs> writing at 7am and blah, blah, blah. And some of us just mess about and hope for the best. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting when you look at, we've talked about the theory of comedy when we talk in the reading list, when we look at other comedians and we did writing with Grania Maguire last week. I do also think it's really interesting to go down to the, the actual nuts and bolts of it, um, what is a joke doing to us in our
2: brains? Yeah, well, that sort of comes back to what I was leaving it earlier on. Like it's yeah. setting up a situation where the rules, or where we don't know the rules. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know uh, how this works. And you know, the premise where it could be, you know, jokes can have any form. They can be like wordplay. Um, when scientists do study uh, humour and stuff, they tend to rely on puns because they're the simplest thing know the most easily measured and metric but it's uh you know also puns aren't necessarily funny and the the, the problem with studying uh humor scientifically it means that in order to get real good results and good data you have to rely on scientists being able to make people laugh on cue and mean, you know you've probably met some scientists it's not it's not their forte (laughs) it's not something they're um they're known to be especially skilled at. So you know, it can't be an uphill struggle in that regard. But we get, get some useful results. But you know, I think it's like the temporal parietal junction, that sort of area where it, like all the different lobes sort of connect. A lot of humour is sort of processed there because it's like all the different aspects, of the situation of a scenario. So someone tells you a joke, like you created this, right? okay, so here's the premise I've just been told. I don't know how this works. Rules don't really apply here. And Then you get to all the punchline, like oh okay, so it puts it all together, like oh, that's how it works, and that sort of r- resolution is the thing the brain really likes in terms
1: of it. that triggers a sort of um mm. brain response. But you just, mentioned yeah. something, sorry, you mentioned something about being safe. You mentioned when when someone falls over, mm. we laugh, but we laugh when we know they're okay. Like yes. we, mm. we we don't we don't go oh, look at that person falling over, <coughs> ha, ha, ha. Oh, they've been hit by a car, they're now dead, ha, ha, ha. We yeah. look at them. <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you think there's something practical we could take about making audiences feel comfortable in that space? Because obviously I am see C- a lot, so my job is to make people in a room feel secure and safe and comfortable. And then when they feel like that, and they know the rules a little bit about how to respond and what noise to make, I suppose you can then play with that feeling because they know deep down that they're feeling safe.
2: Yeah, totally. I think you know, the audience feeling safe is a big part of it. A lot of people say, like, oh, I, I, I don't like the idea of going to stand up because I don't want to be picked on. I mean, it's not something I've seen for a very long time. And I think it's... Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a real, it's a thing anymore, is it? I mean, I'm into a live gig in ages, but it's, MCs will interact. No one's sort of like, ah, look at you. Like, you know, they'll rip the piss out of someone for no reason, because that's not really how humour really works. It's, it's out of fashion, at the very least, in my experience. But but yeah, like, so I think, yeah, a lot of people have said about this. Like, when you go to a certain room, like, I think so many people put on common unites because they think it's just easy. One microphone, a little space in the corner. That's what you need we, for comedy night. But <laughs> there are so many variables which can really challenge that. Like, you know, something a place got too high ceilings. It's too well lit. It's got, you know, a really weird flow. There's a, the seating's all wrong. These things can really impact on how well a gig will work. Or how, like but you say, like the audience, it's so many things that can stop people feeling like an audience. Because mm. like they, they'll feel like individuals in amongst other people. And that's a very different thing. And humor is such a social thing too. Like, as well as the you know, just the resolution of incongruity and stuff, it's evolved for humans to be such a massive social cue as well. Like it's a big part of like relationships, like sort of you know, humans flirt by the humor and stuff. I think you've done some studies where people say, Oh, funny people are always the most attractive. And they suddenly say, No, what it usually means is Attractive people who are funny are deemed more attractive. <laughs> so, so I think people are a little bit less uh, bowled over by good humour than they, than, they, than they think. But you know, every dating profile in the world has good sense of humour on it. You don't get people asking for a bad one, do you? <laughs> I want someone with really bad sense of humour. I want someone to turn up and start <laughs> telling dead baby <laughs> jokes like christening. That's what I want. <laughs> it's just not a thing, is it? But, but like you know, laughter is. You know, it's, I'm telling you, you are like something like thirty times more likely to laugh. When you're part of a crowd than when you're on your own, and it's such a such a massive social cue. So when people feel like you know they are they are an audience, they're more likely to laugh because I also the safety in numbers. They, they understand the the uh, routine, the ritual, like, how this works. But it's when you, uh, you know when you sort of threaten that. I think that's why you know some of the darker comedians they get bigger laughs because they, you, know, you go into territory like oh, this is uncomfortable. Not only am I don't know where this is going there's an re- element of risk here. You're saying these things which you, you know, socially unacceptable and uh, so it's really edgy stuff. So when it's proven to be a joke, revealed as an uh, here's the payoff, you know, the relief is more because you've got that sort of really powerful, oh God, you've taken to a darker place than just a straightforward bit of pun. But that's why it can go wrong. Like some comedians who are really in your face or really unpredictable, they can lose an audience quite quickly because they don't know what this person's doing, and they don't know where they're going, or they don't feel safe. And I think mm-hmm. they've actually done some studies about that. I and mean, you know, a lot, like a lot of people, I heard say that surreal humor can be quite tricky to pull off because it's not just like going on stage and randomly adding in a lot of nonsense. I think actually did start, show like a study of like using jokes. And <clears throat> I think one of the jokes was like, "Why did the golfer wear two pairs of trousers? Because in case he got a hole in one." You know, like, oh yeah, I see. So. I think when would put it would in the machine, like, and if you tell them that joke, you get a sort of certain humor response because they recognize it. But if you re, if you lower the uncertainty, uh, so like, why did the golfer wear two pairs of trousers? Just say, in case he tore one pair. It's just a logical statement. Okay, that makes sense. Like, there's no humor in that. But then if you make it more uncertain, so you say, why did the golfer wear two pairs of trousers? In case the magic badger that lived in his knee clawed his way out and ate all the raspberries. Like, what? That's it. There's, like, there's no resolution. There's just more uncertainty there. I don't like this. This is rubbish. So yeah, like you need that sort of sweet spot of some uncertainty and then solve it, and, and that's the sort of that's the thing people respond to best, and that's where they feel like the that's the comfort zone, I suppose,
1: of a crowd based on neuroscientific data. I love this shit. I love this shit so much. I really do. I uh, I definitely uh, I definitely uh, wouldn't. I'd be the worst. Uh, Uh, scientists in the world. My brain does not work in that way in any way, shape, or form. But as someone that's done this for a living for, like, 23 years, the idea of – and I do – these are the thoughts. I don't think I do it in Dean Burnett's voice, but these are the thoughts I have when I'm going to sleep. Like, after I've done a gig, I'm closing my eyes, and I'm like, God, why did they – why did that audience laugh at that rule of three? Like, what was mm. it? What, why? I've got a big thing with comparing about the rule of the crowd. There was a study um, a while ago, and they phoned me up to talk to them on Radio 4 about this, about how you can get an audience with just a little bit of clapping in one corner that everyone else will follow that crowd mm. a little bit. And it's a really interesting psychological thing just about how, you know, how people will just follow absolute mm. nonsense. I always, I often describe my job and maybe Dean and Ricky can absolutely poo-poo this or say, no, 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 Olvi, you're totally right. I often <laughs> describe my job as a bit like group hypnosis.
0: <laughs> yeah, I totally got yeah, that. No, I, 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 I I that's with that. a really good
1: way of putting it, I think, yeah. I agree with that, yeah, definitely, yeah.
2: Because yeah, there's so much research about, you know, how people work as part of a group, and it's it's coming quite fundamentally different to how we, how we are individually. Like, it's a phenomenon called group polarisation, whereby you expect, you know, if a group of strangers gets together, like 10 of them, and they all have different views about something, a certain issue, like, uh, they obviously go for something contentious, like, like climate concerns or drug legalisation and stuff. You think, well, there's 10 of them together, they're all on different... Uh, perspectives of this you know this issue, different sides of the different levels of the extremes. And uh, so obviously getting together, they'll all just they, they, they'll have an average, you know, they'll discuss it and like, they end up with the sort of the the, the mean point between all the different views. That doesn't happen. People in a group get more extreme because when you sort of get together you find that, like, right, we're all we're all here, so we're a group now. Uh, and one thing the human brain really likes is group harmony. We like we don't like group dissonance. We like the sort of you know it's our tribal instinct to get people together, and they're like, right. So we're all, we're all agreeing that we we care about this thing. But people want status too. They want to be the best one in the group. And all they want to show like yes, I am. I agree with this group, and I agree more than anyone. So I'm going to say, I do this one. It's a tactic used in um, things like weight loss clubs, you know, Slimming World and stuff like that. The, the group weigh in. So people sort of say, right, so we have a group weigh in this week, and you're Slimmer of the week, which means you're the best one. And then everyone else goes, well, I want to be the best one. And so they'll have mm. the ante next week. And then they go, oh, so next week's class wins. That original first person goes, but I won last week. I was the best. I have to be, do even more to be the best one, to be the best slimming, which is what we all care about. So, like, you know, give it enough time. You've got people, like, living on shadows and lettuce and jogging for 24 hours a day. And, <laughs> but, like, they wouldn't have done that left to their own devices. And so you can see some things in the comedy audience. Like, you know, they're all, like, sitting there okay, so we're an audience now, so like they clap, okay, so they're in charge, okay, we, we clap when they clap because I don't have to put much thought into that, and this guy said that's a funny thing, okay, good, so we, we like that now then, and but then some people in the group might laugh at something you think, oh, I was a bit out of order, but oh, it's funny, isn't it? Okay, I guess it's funny then, I guess I agree with that, and mm. yeah, so like you people will be put into this more suggestive state just by being part of a group, and if you're in charge of the group, then you are the hypnotist, like you say, so... This is my roundabout way of saying Oliver is correct, yes. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Oliver is No. <laughs> what?
1: Hold on. Can you? Uh, can we just put this on the post or something? the that, that <laughs> two oh, s- correct. That two scientists, two medics, have said that Mark Oliver is is absolutely correct. Can we have that? <laughs> yeah,
2: I'll put my name to that, that's
0: fine. Yeah, I'll put my name to yeah. that. Thank you. But I show. do, because this Olver is a... Is correct.
1: I, <laughs> I love <laughs> once uh, on this date at <laughs> 10 past two on the 12th of November. Mark Over was correct. It will never have ever <laughs> yeah. happened again. Um plaque we'll on the calendar. <laughs> Ricky, does your brain work like that when you go to gigs? Or, or, or is it my brain because I've been gigging for such a long time? Because obviously Dean would have done more gigs than you in his life, but maybe not recently, but you're still oh, no, gigging. You're, you're doing gigs Recently, does your brain go through that stuff in a kind of slightly more methodical
0: scientific way? Uh, Yeah, no, definitely. Like sometimes I'll turn up to a gig and just be like, there's just no way this is gonna be easy. Like it's just set up where there's like a lamp in the corner and like the bottom left is just really brightly lit for some reason, but half the audience is in the dark so they don't feel like they're all together. But it's like, yeah, like what you said about the group hypnosis is it's so true. Like to have a good setup for a night, like the thing that I always look for is, does the audience feel like they're all in one thing together? Because like Mm -hmm. I mean I think we have quoted so many scientific studies on this episode of (laughs) A Captain My Cousin, but there's like there's like a famous study where they're like you'd have two you you draw like a short line on a piece of paper then a really long line on a piece of paper and then uh, one person comes in and they're accompanied by two researchers. Then you ask the person um or the person who's participating in the study which w- are these lines the same length or are they different sizes and then people will at first say yeah they're different sizes but then the other two people who are in on it will be like no they're not they're the same they're the same they're the same and if you do that for long enough like about 60 percent of people end up agreeing that yeah they are mm. the same because people like that cohesion so it's like it's kind of like even if even if someone tells a joke on stage and you don't immediately get it because there's so many people around you laughing, you are automatically already prone to find it funny. Even if you don't even get it, it's just because everyone's laughing. So now I should. So yeah, it's just, it's interesting because it's like, there are just so many ways to construct a night to make it so much easier for yourself, but it's often Mm. difficult to do.
2: Yeah. just so many variables, isn't it? I mean, I think, I have a similar mindset, like when I used to the gigs and I was thinking, right, what's this going to be like? And I think a lot of the times, you know, I eventually realised it was actually, it was a sort of bit of a handicap of mine in that I would really overthink things. Like, I oh. never got to the point where I was on stage and I was comfortable in sort of just riffing and sort of just messing around and stuff, because, not because I thought, like, oh, I'm shit at this, although that was a constant <laughs> background noise, <laughs> but, but um, it was more to do with, like, I, obviously, i, I do just do a lot of psychology, which a lot of um, neuroscience. So, like, I was just, you know, how people work and how they act and how they behave is at the forefront of my mind generally, because that's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And like, the idea that of it seemed like too much of a risk to me. Like, so oh, if I ask this person what they're doing, I'll just, uh, I'll make something up, and uh, it'll be fine. I, I can never get to that point because I've just constantly, well, what if I ruin this? What if I throw it off? What if I, you know, because I'm consciously aware of all these people who are you know paying attention to me, which is very nice, but. I you know, I just can't too hyper-aware of ruining that by taking a gamble on something and it not paying off. Mm. And I don't know, that just really something I it was a hurdle I could never really get over because I think just, just thinking about it too much um. became sort of self-defeating. And uh, that was uh yeah.
0: It's quite right that, stuff now. That's <laughs> interesting. <laughs> that's interesting, because it's like I'm at that stage now where I'm Able to riff with people like I'm emceeing and stuff like yeah, that. Never got, back, never <laughs> got <back>. <laughs> <laughs> Like I'm just there, and I'm not even good at it. But the what I've found is like the, the standard or the type of thing that is funny in a set is different to something that is funny when you're emceeing, because people mm. kind of see it like, oh, that just happened, how spontaneous, and that for them is the humor. Not necessarily is this a well constructed joke. It's just, it's just mm. literally just pointing out that, oh, the place where someone lives is quite posh and this area is shit. Like that, that kind of thing, even though it's not a joke, audiences find it funny sometimes.
2: Yeah, totally. I think that's a big part of, um, like it's the novelty. And that's something which uh, people can pay comedy to music a lot of the time, but that's something music doesn't necessarily have to deal with because... Mm. With music, like especially with a big band, people want to hear the classics. They want to hear the old stuff. They don't want new stuff like "boodle." It ain't one. We want. We came here for the, the, the greatest hits. Whereas comedians don't have that luxury often, not because, like I say, when it comes to a joke, it's that um, it's that uh, the dissonance, that uh, incongruity, which is sort of the, the main fuel for the for humour. And when you've heard it before, that's not there. I know how this one goes, uh, this, no, this isn't causing the uncertainty in my head which will be resolved and cause a humor response because I know this joke, I'm, I've heard it already, I'm familiar with it and that's sort of, that's why jokes never as particularly funny the second time around and people are always pointing out, oh, there are exceptions, like I can watch this episode or something and laugh my head off every time but that's sort of a different thing you're, you know, because it's a sitcom episode, there's a lot more going on. Like, these are characters you like, these are, you know, you, you, you remember laughing, so you find that part funny as well. They go, here it comes, here it comes, yay! No. So there's lots of that as well. So when you know someone's actually ad-libbing in front of you, it can have more of more an impact because, think, oh, this is all new. This is genuinely brand new, off-the-cuff stuff. And I, even if it's not, you know, top quality content in terms of, you know, uh, sophistication of writing... It's still just for me. It's mine. I feel special mm. and that makes me more funny. So, It's well.
1: why, uh, it's why the, I'm not a fan of this joke format, but I am aware that it's very successful, which is why the fake mistake works so
0: well. Um, <laughs> have we talked about the fake mistake, Ricky? Yeah, you mentioned with Angela Barnes that that was your pet peeve. Um, but the reason that the fake
1: mistake works is because exactly what Dean said people feel like they're in that moment and actually a great comedian can make people feel like they're hearing stuff for the first time so they (coughs) feel like they're in that moment but also so much comedy comes from we we use the word incongruity but also just just surprise Mm. just kind of just saying something that no one expects. And I kind of, um it happens to me a lot when I'm doing warm up or when I'm comparing because I go in with such little plan <laughs> that I'm kind of, I'm surprised myself a lot <laughs> of the time by what is coming out of my stupid mouth.
2: <laughs> well, I, I remember the first time we ever saw you, it was in the Cardiff Student Union and you <laughs> happened to... Ended up getting a guy on stage with you to jump on the sofa who was on the stage. And there was that God almighty crack. You both looked at each other very guilty and slunk off. It was hilarious. But obviously Was that the
1: first time you ever saw me? Yeah, yeah, never seen you before then. So. That's really funny because I used to have a bit of material about that. <laughs> the <that>, about <laughs> the idea that it's basically what blokes do. It's yeah, sort that of was, that was so very basically to Ricky. It. Yeah, it was basically uh there was a sofa on the stage for some reason, and I thought it would be funny. For me and this bloke just to jump on it and um, we were both quite big boys and we jumped on this sofa and it just and the legs just came off <laughs> <laughs> in front of the entire audience yeah. but without even acknowledging it and this was a bloke who was a stranger we both just walked away <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> just,
1: yeah. Just hoping that no one, <laughs> that no one would notice. And yeah, I had you, a bit.
2: <laughs> you literally slunk away. It was amazing. In front of 130 people, let's <laughs> hope no one spotted that.
1: <laughs> but I do, I do think there is something in that, isn't there? Just about that, that way <laughs> of. This is my new motto, which we've talked about on this show quite a lot uh, recently. Which is give enough of a fuck to do well, but not so much of a fuck that it. Inhibits you, or that it makes you too needy or too desperate. And I think that's what you were saying, maybe mm. about being too much inside your own head. Absolutely. When you given, were a kid.
2: Far too many fucks. That was, um, that was probably the problem. Yeah. I, I had an abundance of fucks. I <laughs> 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 was generous.
1: Uh, that was my leadership, I
2: think.
1: I mean, I like think we've yeah. just. I think we just found the new title for Dean's next book, and Abundance <laughs> of, of Fucks. I could go with that and that, I'm sure. But, um, I wonder what yeah. a book called The Abundance of Fucks would be. Because there is those, the subtle art of not giving a fuck, like those yeah. sorts of self-help yeah. books at the moment. That sort of is it, really. It's yeah. kind of trying to find your place in the world and be comfortable yeah. with that.
2: I just thought an abundance of fucks. So I thought was, you're just renaming the joy of sex, really,
0: because...
2: Well, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you oh, called with <a> thesaurus.
2: <laughs> no, but it's... um, It is, like, it's, you know, it's important. Like, how much is it... Because um, you know, I, I never called myself a comedian. I think that was probably telling in hindsight. Like, I, I said, I do comedy. But I never thought I was a comedian, because I never... And made a living from it and I never really expected to. So I was always thinking, you know, I'm I enjoy this, it's great fun and I love doing it, but I'm not gonna, it's not gonna be my thing. Uh, I don't think I ever, I think sort of I pondered about doing an Edinburgh show once, so, but uh, I have a very level headed wife who said, why? I said, uh, yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> how much? How much? And then, oh, yeah, okay. So two, <laughs> two, two, two points in the columns column. Um, uh, so, you know, but I I enjoyed it, but I, if I was actually wanting to make a living out of it, then I think I would have to get over that or sort work on that. Um, you know, that just being too hyper away of the risk of things. And I think that you can't have that if you are doing it properly. You need to sort of be willing to, 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 to rely on yourself as well. I think there's a certain strength to that. I mean, a lot of comedians are, I've, I've seen like beginners who are some of them way too confident. Like you see the guys who are like, you know, it's always the one who's been told they're funny by workmates and guys in the pub, they're like, yeah, I can do this, and I'm gonna get up on stage, and it's a totally different beast. Like I talked to Rob Gilbert about this. He said, you know, like John in the pub said, like, people say, oh mate, John's really funny. John used to do stand-up, and he said, yeah, I could definitely do that. But what we should do when, when he says that, you should like the entire pub go, everyone shut up, John's talking. Turn the TVs <laughs> off, just stare at him until he stops making everyone laugh. Like,
0: yeah.
2: Now let's see how, yeah, because that is sort of uh, much more, uh, you know realistic portrayal of what it's like being a stand-up in that respect.
1: Um, one of the questions that... Uh, if you ever see a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a counsellor, anything in an, in the audience or even in a room, everyone always wants to go, oh, God, you're analysing me. Oh, no. Oh, this is what you do. You're analysing me. I'm, I'm going to ask, though, when you were doing stand-up and you were surrounded by comedians, did you... Did you see something in them that was kind of, I don't know, a constant? Is there, a, is there something from their personalities that you thought, oh, I can understand why you do this?
2: Uh, to a certain extent, yeah. I mean, I think I was just you know, sort of getting sort of vague flash a bit when I was actually watching them in person. But, you know, since I've studied a bit more, I think there are some a lot of studies and a lot of evidence suggest that a typical comedian is... I don't think, you know, perhaps people use the word misfit a lot, but there's someone who is sort of outside of the general social norms because being able and willing and desiring to look at people's, you know, look at stuff people do and make fun of it, you need a bit of a sort of you no know, objectivity. You need to have a sort of an outsider perspective for that. I mean, I know it's observational, common, but there's also like the, the motivation, like who, the people who want to go on stage and say, right, I need, I'm going to spend 20 minutes making strangers laugh you know and that's uh, that sort of suggests there's an itch there which isn't being scratched in wider society like they don't you know they, they find it difficult to interact with people on more normal terms so where some people are just happy to go to the pub with their mates and just chat like that for a bit or go to a football game some people need the sort of general approval from others and uh, can find it easier to have to find it on um, on the stage in that respect because Although people find it, you know, the layperson thinks it's a terrifying prospect to get up and say to front of people and make them laugh. It's it's horrifying I, you know, because we are so uh, keenly attuned to social embarrassment and to avoid stuff like that. But it's also a, you know, it also offers a strong measure of control too. I mean, what are the contexts are there when you can have dozens of people just listening to you and let mm. you say what you want to say? And that, that that is really rewarding too. That to have that, uh, if you if you don't get it elsewhere, is you know, your brain is like, oh, this is good. This is am really quite uh, quite keen on this? So yeah, I think a lot of comedians are just sort of people who are slightly out of sync with the general population because, mm-hmm. and that's what gives them the you, you, unique perspective. And then you know, I don't know if Johnny Vegas calls it the arena of the unwell. I wouldn't go that far with it. There will, <laughs> there will be, you know, a, a, perhaps a higher percentage of comedians who have you know, whatever issues uh, to, to deal with. Um, but I think also, yeah, again, on a slightly more negative note, I did sort of very, very quickly recognise the, the whole, the power play, the dynamics of it. And amongst male comedians particularly, like the this thing, I mean, I was with several guys like, like, I you know, kind of friends of mine are really good comics, but they were really insecure people. It really happens quite a lot. <clears throat> and then mm-hmm. they would do a set, do a really good job, you'd storm it, and then come off and they're uh, friend, it was, it was a, also a comic, but not as good. Uh, would say, yeah, well, what he did wrong there was, you know, X, Y, Z. You should have done this. It was, you missed that line, didn't you? So, very much a dominance thing. Uh, you know, it's very easy to spot that, and that mm. you did better than me there. But I must now show my dominance over you by critiquing your set or, you know, sort of downplaying your achievements. And you know, I think when you in such an environment as stand-up comedy, when you know you really are. You, know, you really are out there, and you know, you, this is—it's it's as you as you can be. It's just you and a microphone and an audience, then you will get perhaps more you know, extreme manifestations of that. Whereas you know, in the office, it would be a bit more you a, a bit more snide, perhaps. Whereas with comedians, it's a bit more blatant, uh, in, in my experience. I mean, I'm sure, you have your own stories of, 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 of <laughs> collaborate Well, defines. do you know what? Well,
1: it's it's funny you should say that. We've already named uh, Dean's new book "The Abundance of Fucks." <laughs> um, this is uh, so. This is my book, um, and Ricky, uh, mm-hmm. I say now, um, give up medicine. If uh, i yeah. trying to be a doctor oh, and yeah, yeah. go down uh, the neuroscience uh, psychology route and okay. then you can have this, because I've been trying to find <laughs> someone to take... So this is my theory, Yeah. all right, that, uh, and I don't know enough about mental health and I don't know enough about mental illness and I don't know enough about the brain, but this is my theory, that fame can count as a mental illness,
0: Fame can count as a mental
1: illness. Ooh. Fame can count as a mental illness. Because, like, when you look at things like dementia, and during lockdown I was working uh, in a care home, so I did a little bit of work with people with dementia, um, and my friends who have become famous, everyone who becomes famous goes through a little bit of a process where they change a bit. And and sometimes that can change from the positive and sometimes it can change for a minute negative and sometimes it can be much more. Is that when Dean said that thing about someone coming off stage and someone in the audience, or or someone backstage, a comedian backstage, sort of being a bit snidey, like there is that concept of fame that I think changes people's realities a little bit. Mm, No,
0: no, I mean, it makes makes sense. I mean, it's, it's such a crazy existence to be like known by so many people and like what that would do to you psychologically, like people giving a fuck that you do something on the street or people taking pictures of you. Like that would just be so annoying. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. But you're right that it would definitely distort your world because a lot of like how we understand how the world works is via feedback from other people. So, you know, we, we don't, when people sort of react to an emotionally certain thing, we think, Oh, that's how you're supposed to react to that. And, because like, our brains are so empathetic, we are so keenly aware of the people's emotions that we calibrate ourselves from those around us essentially. But when you're famous, and when suddenly like you're hot property, and you, you know, especially if you're proper, proper, big famous, you get surrounded by people who won't tell you no, who won't, mm-hmm. they can't risk upsetting you because you're the one who's you're 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 the you're in charge of the gravy train for want of be a better description. Rather, and so then you start thinking that well, I no one's told me I'm wrong for ages, so I guess I know about this now, and then. <clears throat> you um start saying stuff and go, yep, yeah, yeah, cool, we can do that. And then you you, you get all the, you know, the, the, the huge celebrities who are into all these ridiculous diets, these really sort of weird, fad things. and like No one like, on the street would ever say something like that. I mean, I just written one about uh, perineum sunning. Are you familiar with that one? No, what's that? Well, exactly like, what it sounds like. You just get naked and lift your ass into the air and let the sun burn it. And that's <laughs> apparently... Apparently, it supercharges your organs because by exposing this sort of sensitive part of the body to direct sunlight. And yeah, Josh Warren did it. He got a really badly sunburned arse.
1: I'm actually doing it at the moment. Um, <laughs> I can only see my. You can only see my face, but I'm in a hotel in Shepherd's Bush. Uh, it's November, there isn't much sun, but I do just have my ass pointing out the window just hoping that <laughs> I get some rays on my body Seedy-looking guy. Yeah. Seedy-looking <laughs> <CD> guy.
2: <laughs> but it's something um, that happens now. I'm going to the, it, 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 gonna be famous now. You can do it online. You know, people get into these online communities where everyone tells them they're right about something, and they end up having very unusual ideas uh, and mm. beliefs about what's happening in the world. So... Yeah, you can see it happening. I can imagine
1: fame would be just another really effective way of doing that. Yeah, and actually, do you know what? It, 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 it isn't just about fame, you're right. I remember, especially when you were gigging, the Cardiff scene was so strong that people would uh, would often gig just in other gigs in Cardiff. And so mm. the same comedians would see each other. And I know it happens in London to a massive degree where everyone just watches each other all of the time. And actually what you need as a comedian is to get out of that. And these are words that seem to have sprung up recently with Twitter, you know, echo chambers and feedback loops and stuff like that. But it is just useful to get out of that echo chamber to well, see yeah. how you're actually doing.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think just as a as a person and as a comic, like if you have nothing that is humbling you to a certain extent you will just get an inflated ego and it is it is interesting because it's like how many artists bands comedians got a bit worse once they became massively famous it's Mm. like it's it's all it's like the exception to constantly get better throughout your career no matter how famous you are and if you can do that then that's incredible
2: Absolutely, yeah. It, it's a real thing. Like, so you need that feedback. You need the, so you need to be chidden. You, know, you need the rough edges smoothed off by negative responses—not not, not, not attacks or criticism—but to
1: go up to to say a joke and people go, "Huh." Eh, you know, Dean, uh, how do um how do our brains respond to failure? Because comedy is so much about failure. I always say the great the thing I love about stand up is that you you learn from your mistakes. I often say to people if they've got a joke that needs working on you go well that's good because if it's a joke that needs work on you can work on that joke and it's easier to find Mm. funny from things that go what wrong but we are quite fragile little souls aren't we so (laughs) how does the brain cope with 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 fucking up
2: basically well there's quite a few different um, ways you can respond and I'm sure you've met comics who do this, but there are, there are certain comics who will just refuse to acknowledge it. And <laughs> <laughs> No, that was great. That was, and that was definitely brilliant. There was a one person giggled in the back, and that was a, that's a good gig. And you know, you've seen like, you know, this—the the shell of self-belief they built around themselves is impressive, but again, it won't help them improve because they don't recognise criticism and stuff. But in a more, more typical person, it's a sort of weird balance because. The brain has a bias towards negative experiences in terms of when we experience them. Like we tend to pay more attention to the failures and the, you know, the, the, the bad things than the good things. And again, it's such a cliche of comedians, like you've got an audience of 100, 99 laughing faces, the one frown is the one you're focused on, um, partly because you know, it stands out, partly because your brain is very sensitive to threats and dangers, and because it's are such social creatures, someone else's disapproval is perceived as a threat. That's so they don't like me. And then that means I might be doing something wrong. I don't know what the deal is. So, okay, that's that's dangerous, that's bad. And then you sort of, you know, you can focus on that. But on the flip side, there's also the fading in effect bias, which means although the experience of a negative thing tends to be more potent and more tension grabbing than a positive thing, the memory of the negative thing fades faster than the positive one. So, you know, if you have two two experiences, happens, at the same time, bad and a good one. Like a year later, you remember the good one uh, better, and you will make this will make you feel good. You, you you'll remember the emotional aspect of it, and the negative one will have faded more, like, you know, like chewing gum, which fades faster. The flavour just goes; it's just there. And is
1: that an evolutionary thing?
2: Yeah, there's lots of reasons for it. Like it's someone, one one thing is to us keep us uh, you know, keep us motivated, keep us upbeat. Because when you have, you know, if, if, you, if your head is full of but negative memories, I mean, you wouldn't do much. You wouldn't do. You'd be you know, like, that's one thing that happens with depression people lose this ability they can only focus on negative things and it's really debilitating uh, so you know, remember remembering the positives helps us learn better and keeps us you know, optimistic keeps us going forward uh, while simultaneously focusing on the negatives in front of us make us more um uh, you know more <coughs> uh, you know safe and keeps us more away of stuff but so when you fail as a comedian you know it's it's a valuable learning. Thing, I think, and uh, you know, then you'll remember the failing, and you won't enjoy it. But a lot of people do laugh later on. People love bad gig stories because, like, the, the negative emotional quality of the memory is sort of mostly faded, but the actual event is still there, so you can laugh at it now. And mm-hmm. Remember the time I died in my arse? so was, God, never, I was never, never been anything like it. And it's- this
1: is uh, this is the psychologist's version of the Sarah Millikan rule, which is. Um, no matter what happens at the gig, you should get over it by 11 o'clock the next morning. Um, I like that. Yeah. And, just, and just move on and you know, go, okay, well, it's done. I've dwelled on it. I've sulked about it a little bit. I am moving on. Um, Ricky, like, mm-hmm. so, Dean, last series, we did an uh, a podcast episode uh, with my uh, accountant. Um, <laughs> uh, Ricky was not sure about that episode. Um, and annoyingly for Ricky, it's turned out to be one of our most
0: popular episodes. <laughs> yeah, um,
2: yeah. I'm intrigued, I'm gonna download that now, to be honest. Irritating, isn't it,
0: Ricky? It's <laughs> funny. It is funny. They're just a bunch of money hungry comics out there. <laughs> <laughs> I know who you are. <laughs> but the
1: thing the thing I like about the, the thing I like about this episode is when people listen to it, they might think, "Oh God, there's something quite dry about looking at kind of, you know, the psychology, the neuroscience uh, behind how jokes work and how audiences work and how comedians work." But I hope people under- I hope people can see it in the way that I can see it. I hope people can see it mm. as a useful thing. Do you-, do you know what I mean, Ricky? Yeah, I love I love the damage control.
0: But yeah, like it's like. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, so please keep listening. But like no, no. <laughs> Do you know what? No, I'm gonna go the
1: opposite of damage control. If you're not interested oh God. in the neuroscience um, of oh uh, comedy, you can fuck off. Stop <laughs> listening that. I refuse. We're gonna find a way. Of uh, filtering out our audience. We only want the best people. And if you're not interested in which part of the brain uh jokes work in, then I've got no interest in you. <laughs> you get <the> fuck out. <laughs> and that includes you, Masindo.
0: includes <laughs> no, you. No, I am obviously interested in it. I live for this shit. But is it it is it is like um like the joke writing, like you can't write jokes forever by thinking rule of three and pullback reveal all that stuff hmm. but knowing those things helps you support funny concepts so it's like if no one ever tells you like how if a room is like unevenly lit or the audience are all facing different directions or um, they all don't feel like one cohesive group that that's like bad, then you'll just always try, go up there, do your best and try to be funny. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And you don't know whether to blame yourself or whether to blame the gig. But I mean, that's kind of the difficult thing as well, because it's like, obviously everyone has gigs that they have that went badly, but it's always difficult to know whether it's like, I need to improve, or that was a difficult gig, and this is what I could have done. But if you don't even know what a difficult gig is, or that they exist, then you'll just constantly be anxious and like, oh, what am I doing? What am I doing? Totally,
2: I've, I've, I've been really surprised because I've been in quite a few comedy competitions, you know, and they're, they're all over the country for various reasons. Well, they were pre-pandemic and should be able to come back. But the number of times people will do comedy for the first time ever, as part of a contest, it's always been really thrown me. Like there's I've, I've been several like tweaks and stuff. Like there's like I've never done this before, I'm doing it. Why, why, why have you chosen this to be your first? If, I mean, some people don't know that you know, there are gigs available. I know that, but it, I'm very interested in the psychology of someone who thinks well, I want to try this and I'm going to it in a contest for the first ever time. And that seems like going from 0 to 60 rather.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was <laughs> involved in the BBC New Comedy Awards. And so I watched all <coughs> these videos this year and and some of them were people who, because it was the pan oh, at the end of the pandemic, people were sending these videos in, having never done a gig in front of people before they filmed it in their house, and then their very first ever gig was at the showcase um wow and mm. it is it it is odd but at the same time, and I think it's a psychological phenomenon. That we all know the name of, we just don't know how it works. Which is fight or flight. Like we all, we all know sort of what that means. And in my head, fight or flight means okay, I could either not do this or I'm just going to go absolutely massive and hope, and hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. And literally, that's literally my style. Whenever I'm not sure, okay. <laughs> I'm going loud and,
0: and I'm charge. going confidence. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna jump on a sofa, here we fucking go. <laughs> Seemed
1: to work. can I argue
2: that. can I argue the results.
0: Yeah. And also it is, it's also it's like with the competition stuff, not like not necessarily to the size of like the BBC New Comedy Award, but like a lot of the reason why some people start stand up is they want that validation of I'm funny. So doing a competition in your mm. local like comedy club or whatever will like, immediately give you that validation of ah yes I can do that because a lot of people don't want to do it if they're not good which yeah.
2: is yeah well obviously more obvious quantification I wonder if also the, the idea of having rules or obvious rules is more comforting as well because I got Mike Knight got someone saying oh, can I have a go and said yeah and then that's you know, that's there's so much uncertainty there was confidence. You've got five minutes. You can do this. You can do that, and then it's and so. Maybe you know, maybe the, the boundaries applies. It is a bit more reassuring for someone who's going to take the punt. This is just me just hypothesising off the top of my head now. So um <laughs> some free Isn't that you what all
1: science? Just, isn't that what all science is? Isn't it just hypothesising shit? Doesn't all <laughs> science start from that? That's my next book: <laughs> hypothesising shit. <laughs> so, after <laughs> No, but like, but, sure, but surely, all science has to start with a hypothesis. Yeah, and course, so yeah. like the sciencey bit. May can we Can you ask these universities that you're connected to if they need someone to just go in and hypothesize shit, but not do any <laughs> of the actual work? Because I reckon I've been be really good at that. <laughs>
2: Yeah, because get up some robes as well, give a toga, That'd be nice. under <laughs> the corridors.
1: But but I bet, I bet there's someone in universities who all the other professors hate because they're all like, oh fucking hell. He does no work. He's never in the lab. He just goes around hypothesizing shit and then says to says to us, Oi mate, I've hypothesized some shit. Can you go and can you go and do some questionnaires and get a control group? That's how it works, isn't it? <laughs>
2: Quite possibly. I mean, I know some people who would, who do technically do that. So yeah, that uh, is, uh, yeah professors yeah. can be quite uh, inclined to. Well, I've done the hard work of thinking up things. <laughs> you minions, go take care of that. But, yeah, that's, that's not an unheard of uh, approach. So
1: hold on, are you saying that I'm right again? Is that twice in one podcast? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, but I think about it, this one might be a coincidence.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, <laughs> I understand, uh, it's, and and do you know what? There's only one way we could discover if this is a coincidence or whether this is actually a theory. Um, we're going to have to go and study this. So um, I'm going to hypothesise that Mark Oliver is actually a scientific genius. Um, Ricky, can you do that survey, please? Go and do the study in it.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't think you want to see the results of that study. <laughs> <laughs> <Talking>. <laughs>
2: Don't we need a control mark over who isn't a scientific genius
1: to serve
2: just the measure again? Yeah.
1: Hold on, Ricky Macindo. I want I wanna know. Um yeah. this is hold on, this is is this confirmation bias that Ricky Masindo has already decided I'm not a, be yeah. genius. Yeah. So yeah, right. this should be never
0: that, Yeah, I'm not a fair I I shouldn't even know you. I should just I should just meet you for the research.
1: Oh, this is an ethical quagmire, isn't it? This yeah, this is, <laughs> this is no, yeah, no clinical cool equipoise.
0: No clinical
1: equipoise. Sorry, say that say that say that again, because I've never heard that phrase before. It's
0: a clinical equipoise. Equipoise? Yeah, I'm going to Google that now because this goes out (laughs) to too many people to make up a word. (laughs) Clinical (coughs) equipoise. Yeah, so clinical equipoise is the assumption that there is not one better intervention present. So it's like when you're doing a study and you're giving one person a drug and another group another drug, you can't know which one is better before you go in. Clinical equipoise.
1: I'm going to say right now, we are the only podcast about comedy that have used the phrase clinical equipoise.
0: Yeah, thank you. It's um, a It yes.
1: tried to work out if Mark Olver is a, is a scientific <laughs> genius. <laughs> genius. <laughs> and do you know what? The fact that I did not know what clinical equipoise means is probably enough of the study.
0: No, neither did I. I just,
1: I've
0: just seen it written down.
1: Um, Dean, thank you so much for this, Ricky. Is there anything else you want to ask, note, say about kind of this is, this was both of your worlds colliding into each other?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, just yeah, like with your books, just can you talk about how you go about writing them? with like the neuroscience slash yeah. the levity, like what is, how do you synthesize the two worlds? What's the process like? Yeah, well, I, I think it comes from
2: uh, doing the stand-up really. So like I, I do a, a lot to uh, stand up in terms of, oh, well, my current career is gone. And that I'm not, um, uh, you know, like, I was always on the mentality before that you should keep them separate. and I mentioned just now, like you have to do science, you do comedy, you can't do both because Science the order and rules and mm. repeat stuff and comedy is irreverence and idiosyncrasies and stuff and then and then one day on stage I just sort of got a bit bored and started dropping the stuff into it and I got a good response and that was encouraging so I started merging the two and then it became a thing that I sort of do and when it comes to like you know there's lots of different ways to go about writing the book but my general default assumption when I'm doing anything is just just you know, tell myself the reader is at least as smart as I am, possibly smarter, they just don't know what I know. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the sort of the really handy rule of thumb when it comes to, well, I can talk whatever I want because the person I'm talking to is at least as smart as me. They just don't have my vocabulary or experiences or jargon. So I've got to put it across in ways like, you know, and also having a non-scientific family help too, because I go back home to the valley and people say, oh, what, what have you been up to? Well, I did this, you know, looking into the hippocampus and how it uh, retrieves re- 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 confugal memories in a maze setup. I'm like, what? Is- yeah, okay, let's, let's start again. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, uh, like, God bless my grand. She insisted on having a copy of my thesis, my doctoral thesis, and <sighs> I said, okay, you can have it. One, because yeah, and I promise I will read it. It's, you won't. I mean, you don't. I, I, don't, know, I don't expect you to. Like this seventy-five-year-old miner's wife. <laughs> well, <laughs> he's never left. Like. I read the first two pages, it just wasn't very, it's not, it's not a story, none. <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's not, it's not like Cinderella or something. It's a, uh, it's just like a explanation of the campus. And, um, <laughs> so yeah, so that's, that's my general sort of go-to rule. Just assume everyone is as smart as you and just don't, doesn't know what I know. And that's, yeah. that's really, it's, it's served me well so far.
1: That's really cool. Really Brilliant. I cool. um, Thank you so much. I'm really uh I'm really looking forward to uh people listening to this and <laughs> in the next couple of weeks hearing uh people attempt to do jokes specifically to try and hit some of these synapses <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh I will say this right now. Uh I will give five pounds to any comedian I watch who listens to this who can do a joke about clinical Equipoise. Equipoise. Uh, so if I see you so don't don't flag it up. Just put <laughs> it out there. Get some laugh bosh. Uh they are Five cool. pounds knock over. Um, I can't wait for Google equipoise to be a punchline. <laughs> um, <Equipoise>
0: uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> um Dean, thank you so much. No yeah, problem, well, man. Always happy to help out um great to see you and hopefully we will see each other in real life sometime that'd be nice yes it's definitely possible but,
2: cheers ricky cheers, that was
1: nice take care meeting. dean nice thanks yes. Dave. bye 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 um ricky no marcus i want to keep this bit in the podcast because i want to do i was listening to a podcast the other day that had a disclaimer about some bits and pieces, so I want to do a disclaimer for the, this podcast because I've been listening to it. Uh, I always listen to the episodes, and I wow. have noticed that in this series, our sound quality is worse than our sound quality has ever been before. Ah, ha, ha, ha. You mean your sound
0: quality is worse? Well, no, yours <laughs> as well, mate. Because yeah. you've got dodgy Wi-Fi. That's true. That is true. We have a lot of we have a lot of crick crackles.
1: And so I just, so I wanted to put at the end of this episode for all of those people who are still here, um, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for continuing uh, to support us just by listening and getting involved. I'd still love more people to get involved. We're doing another um, All Questions Asked with an amazing uh, comic in a couple of weeks' time. But I also want you to know that I am also a listener and sometimes I'm in my car listening and I'm like, oh, that just sounds like a slightly shit phone conversation (laughs) with that. Basically, we can't fix it at the moment because Ricky is in Yeovil and I'm in hotels all over the place. If we can't fix it, the next best thing is to at least acknowledge the fact that we know it exists.
0: Exactly. We know it exists. It's shit, but we're aware of it. Uh, we have a medical student and we have
1: a man who lives in Ibis budgets. We are aware that <laughs> <laughs> we hope the content makes up for the lack of uh, technical ability.
0: Yeah. And worst case, the audio on the intro is still the same. So just enjoy that over and over and over again. Oh, Captain. Captain. My Captain. Hi, Captain. <laughs> you know, multiple, multiple people have asked me if that's me singing. And I'm just like, no, and like <laughs> obviously not. Oh, Captain! My Captain! Yeah, no, you're right. You do a
1: better impression of me than you do of the bloke singing our our theme tune. Exactly,
0: and I still don't know what his name is. No, we're never gonna know. No. Um, that was fun, right? That science was a lot of, of fun. The science of comedy. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was really useful as well, actually. Might start writing some books. There's all there's loads of people doing this kind of thing, like Adam Kay as well. Yeah, like he's a, a medic who's now just writing comedic books, and yeah, it's really cool.
1: Absolutely. There you go. Um, uh, Macindo, I'm going to go. So this is the quickest turnaround ever for an episode, right? So this is going out in, like, 24 hours or something
0: like that. Yeah, less than that. It'll probably take – it'll probably need minimal editing. I'm just going to –
1: And don't we have – don't we don't we have a couple of like Norwegians or people who who listen to the
0: episodes as soon as they come <laughs> out? Is that sort of thing. Uh, Czechoslov- uh, Czechoslovakians, yes. No, Czechoslovakians. Czech Republic? Is that yeah? Czech Republic. The Czech, Czech. Republic, yes. Yeah, Czechoslovakia Czechos- no longer exists. <laughs> no longer
1: exists. Um, <laughs> science. This episode. Next episode. History and geography. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh thank you very much for listening uh fine listener um we've got to the book where we know most of you so thank you Annie johns thank you who else who else can we name do we know who people listens? that i don't yeah, uh who
0: listens? who listens uh thank you hannah gray my girlfriend she's been asking for a shout out for ages so there you go oh thanks it's hannah it's thanks done for listening it's done okay um, and Alex Kitson, keep it, keep it easy, man. Who else? Who
1: else? Give me, give me one that I might not know. Is there anyone, have you ever had a message from someone? I know, someone. um, I know Roger O'Sullivan listens. He's someone I met on the BBC. Oh, uh, he's are, very good.
0: There are so many, I don't know most of the people. Like I get messages. Give me a name, give me a no, name. A random name, you want a random name, ah! Yeah. Okay, thank you, A. Kitson.
1: Kai. No, no, that's not a random name because that's literally Alex Kitson.
0: No, no, no. Oh, sorry. I, wrote, I, wrote, I read that horrendously. Atkinson Kai, 69 on Twitter. That... So do we think their name is Kai Atkinson? I would say so. And 69 is not in their name. Okay. So, uh, Kai Atkinson, uh, what I want you
1: to do, I want you to message us. Uh, a question message me or Ricky any way you want Uh, I want you to message us uh, with a little bio of yourself Uh, if you're if you're a stand-up if you are just a fan of comedy how many geeks you've done if you are a stand-up who your favorite comics are all that sort of stuff I want a little biog of Kai Atkinson Kai Atkinson So get in contact with us, specifically Kai Atkinson, uh, because I've got ideas about future episodes uh, that might involve uh, Kai
0: Atkinson. Love to see it. Love to see it. I hope you're real. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much for listening. Uh, I'm going to go and... uh, Dress up
1: as Boris Johnson and uh, pretend to Riverdance. Uh, no
0: questions asked. Captain, my captain. Goodbye. I <laughs> see There are. Oh, Bye-bye. Captain, my captain. Oh, Captain, my
1: captain.